the Apostle Paul, one of the most prolific writers in the New Testament, endowed with a genius mind and a spirit of experience that came from the secular community, that came from the Jewish culture. And yet God tapped him in a very unusual way, one that he should and would never forget. An experience of being stricken blind, the road to Damascus, as a result of his festering, believing that Christianity and the church was anti-Jehovah, anti so to speak, and that every person who had followed Jesus and the ministry of Jesus was all wrong. Saul was his name then. He thought, I'm going to bring correction. You know people like that. Individuals are going to set the world straight. Individuals are going to set the record straight. Individuals that they're going to bring their playing to the game and step in the batter's box and say, I'm going to straighten all this mess out. Every one of us has a specific plan that is dedicated to us by God. Some of the things that I don't understand, I know that God can take, can take ashes and turn them into blessing. I know that. I don't understand sometimes how God will take a wicked person and in their wayward way and in their not acknowledging God and matter of fact walking away or ignoring God and God use them and God use them even though they're walking contrary to the will of God to bring about a miraculous undertaking and circumstance. I've come to the realization, I've watched people and read Scripture even in failure, out of failure, not knowing that their failure was going to contribute to something wonderful as it relates to fulfilling the plan and the will of God. As we under, understand that, we know, and I've come to the conclusion in my own heart, that God knows every footstep God knows every pain. God knows every curve in the road. And he knows every pothole of your life. He knows the seasons in our lives when we're going to be held and hallowed and seasons in which it seems like all things work well. That whatever we do seems to bring blessing and comfort and pleasure. And then and then I know that there are times when that ends and you go through what I call often the valley of the shadow. It's in my spirit, standing where the Psalms were written primarily and looking in that deep gorge, the valley of the shadow of death, where the sun did not shine at the bottom. I thought about an individual today that is an individual that committed suicide. I've talked to him before who made the statement, I can do this blindfold. Let's hurry up and get this service over. I'm ready to go home. And said that to the worship team and others. And not long after that, committed suicide because he had leaned on a whiskey bottle and could not carry a life of hypocrisy while trying to deliver the gospel and drinking a fifth almost daily, hiding that. I look at that and I think, wow, 
there had to be times when all of us in our lives want to give up. And I don't know that maybe sometimes we say, well, I'm not going to give up. And maybe we don't. But maybe we just get apathetic. Maybe we just get lukewarm. We always have an excuse for that kind of behavior. But there is no excuse that is compatible with God's word to each of us. That every single day we are to put our best foot forward. Every day we're to grow closer with him. Every day there's some things that we don't understand. Sometimes our emotions are depleted. Sometimes we did not get a fair shake, often from those that's closest to us. We put our best foot, as I've said before, forward. Somebody steps on it. I know what that's like. I've given you illustrations of my life. I could give you many more. Motive was pure. Heart was pure. Doing what I thought was necessary. Doing what I was directed to do and was unappreciated. It was an individual that complained about it and tried to bring ought and on and on and on and on and on and on. And I remember, however, that I had to learn some of the things that I know now. I said again to someone else the other day who were in ministry and really just dragging through ministry, and I said, listen, you cannot let people tag you with the things that you're going to do. People are people are people. You have to put things in your mind and send them out there into oblivion and don't let the devil tag you with them. If you do, you will find yourself fighting a battle that you cannot win because those kinds of battles are battles that only God can fight. I cannot complain about my life, nor can I complain and murmur about the experience I'm having now and honor and glorify God. I have the opportunity to make a decision every day. Who is my Lord? Who is my Savior? Has he ever disappointed me? Has he ever made a mistake? Has he ever turned his back on me? And the answer to all of those and many more is absolutely not. He's God. He is Jehovah. He's omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. And the love, the love of his heart is you. The love of his heart is me, individually and collectively. All of us have experienced that. We see the trial of the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul. Why do we have his story found in Acts 18, 1 through 11? It's like God is saying, I'm going to allow Paul to experience this because I'm going to want you to pay attention in 2017 or pay attention every time you read Acts 18 and you come up with some thought processes in your spirit. If that happened to Paul, if Paul experienced that, wow, God, I, I want to look at it as a word of encouragement. Abba Iban wrote, you can't achieve anything without getting in someone's way. Somebody say amen. And you can't be detached and be effective. Let me say it again. You can't be detached and be effective. You have to be what I call for the purpose of the message, be committed. Be radically committed. Say that with me. Be radically committed. We're going to get to the part in a moment in Acts 18, but here it is in verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. There was a need that he spoke to Paul in a vision, and we'll figure that out in a moment. And he says, don't be afraid. 
keep on speaking and don't be silent. The great apostle Paul in a most difficult place. He's come to Corinth. We know about Corinth to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the great pristine educational center of all of Greece. It's the capital of the Roman province. It's a major route of commerce, a major port, a city of wealth, city of good business, city of luxury, and whatever you wanted to do sinfully, you can do it, a city of immorality. He arrives and he receives in the beginning of the 18th chapter shelter from Aquila and Priscilla. How many of you, your name is Aquila? How many are grateful your name is not Aquila? May I see your hand? Let me just say this. You can go to the Polk County Records, and if you'd like to change your name, you can adopt the name Aquila if it really, really matters to you. Paul began to minister to the Jews and to the Greeks, to the Jew and the Gentile. He taught for hours, preaching his best stuff, teaching his best material. He planted spiritual seed. He prayed for revival, fasted and prayed. He reasoned with them on their level. He used every persuasion as it relates to communication that he could, and absolutely nothing happened. Now, there's even a greater problem because he was just in Thessalonica, and he could just stand up and preach in Thessalonica. And people by the droves heard his message and repented. Wow, I saw revival in Thessalonica. He moves there to Berea, and he preaches again. And wow, great results in Berea. Man, I've got an, I've got an evangelism crusade that's absolutely phenomenal. Boy, that preaching and that teaching, boy, the Spirit of God is moving. Thessalonica, Berea, and you're doing some great things. It goes from there to Athens. And in Athens, again, he preaches and people and major leaders in the community come to faith. He's thinking, my gracious, I've struck oil as it relates to the anointing of Almighty God. He's in a forward progress. It's a moment of productivity. It's a moment of great harvest. It's a moment that anything that he touched seemed to, so to speak, turn to gold. His message was heard, and it was unbelievable. But there were some naysayers. But you know who they were? Jews. Not Gentiles. Jews. Paul said, hey, you bunch of Jews, I, I am a Jew. And yet this is the message that I'm preaching, and I'm a Jew saved and redeemed by the grace of the Son of the living God, and the people that give me the problem the most happen to be the Jews. He could not understand that. He preached and labored even more. A great teacher of the Jewish law. He challenged them and said, if you're coming to me with the law, come on, because i got to tell you, I know things that you've never even studied yet. I paid my dues. Don't come to me with the law. That great speaker, highly intellectual, well-educated, thousands have begun, and nothing happened. So you find yourself in your life and in your ministry and in your family and in your business, you find yourself, boy, I remember the day, I remember the day, I remember the day. We all had those days of wonderful, we've had those days of difficulty and adversity that's there. But what makes it even worse is when you're coming off a mountaintop and saying, my heart's pure, my motives have been right, I've endeavored to follow God, I've done all things right, I've paid my dues, I have served, I have given, I've done everything. And all of a sudden he hit a block wall. 
Nothing shakes in Corinth. Nothing. It says, but when the Jews, in Acts 18, 6, but when the Jews opposed Paul, the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive. He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, hey, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Because you Jews who ought to be first in line, who ought to be paying attention, you're not doing, you're not giving fair justice. And so I've heard the remarks and the stories of those that have distanced themselves from the church. Distance himself from the church and say, oh, the church failed me. The church, well, the church, I'm fed up with church. The church this, the church, I tell you, the church, and speak in negative tones. And you can always corral a bunch of people who don't go to church, anti-church, not with the program. He will agree with you in a heartbeat. And it's like your own family and those that you worship with and those that, that you've uh, enjoyed fellowship with. It's like they're the ones now. Well, do you expect the enemy to attack you in a way that you understand? The worst hurt is the hurt often you receive from someone that's close to you. Any amens out there? Those that are closest to you. And the enemy knows that. You see, many of you in this room may feel that way. I'm being abused because you married a, an unbeliever or maybe you work with an unbeliever. You can't seem to make any, any headway and it appears that they don't care. And what happens, we want to react in a carnal way like the Apostle Paul did. God calls him to be radical, extreme, dig down deep and understand what it means. What does that mean? Our neighbor across the street, Sharon and I were seated for just a few minutes and looked and Billy was in his lawn, and he was pulling up one of those hedge things, trying to pull them up that, that just is aggravating to pull out of the ground. And it's the same kind of a bush that when I tried to pull it out of the ground a number of years ago, Sharon had a four-wheel drive Jeep. I pulled on it enough and said, I'm not putting up with this anymore. I got me a chain. I hooked to the back of that four-wheel drive Jeep. Can you imagine hooking a four-wheel drive Jeep up with a heavy chain to a plant? Not a tree, a plant. I thought, I want you to know, you think you're going to stay. I'm going to show you a little Jeep love. And I did. I knew enough not to back up and get a running start. But I backed up about three feet. And then I thought, here we go, buddy. That jerked that plant out of the ground so fast, it was unbelievable. It went like a missile <laughs> through the air, chain and all, way over, way over in the other part of the lawn. I thought, wow, one down, ten to go. You understand those kinds of things, the root system is radically committed to think that you're there. I watered you every day. I fertilized you every day. And then when I come along and get ready to pull you out, you resist me. I'm going to hook a chain to you. I'm going to deal with you to be committed. What is radically committed? Here's what I, I, I want to encourage you. In all my years of ministry, it's amazing I can say that now. I would always be more committed 
to the plan God has for me than the results I'd like to see. Let me say it again. If you're an evangelist, you're looking for results. If you're going to follow as a believer in your life and your life's going to count, it has to count when disappointment is there, when sadness is there, when no comes, it has to count as greatly then as it does when you're raking in the blessing and favor of God. I have to be committed to the plan. I heard someone say in a very tense meeting the other day, and the individual said, I quit, I'm done, as soon as we're through this, it is over. I am fed up with this, I've had enough. That individual was weeping, seriously, emotion, several of us in the room. And someone said to him, what I want to know, did God, do you believe still that God called you here? Of which he replied emotionally, don't you pull that God card on me. Don't you love those kind of settings? Now, since then, we've talked, of course, and they apologize for saying it to the group and all emotion. And you say, well, what a statement to say. Don't get too prideful. I got to tell you, there's probably been a time that you've said, don't you pull that God card on me now. Here it is. God desires us to be committed to the plan that he has for our life. What if things go awry? What if there are mistakes? What if there are errors? What if there is heartbreak? God is responsible. God is responsible for the results. We're to be radically committed to make disciples, to teach them under the power of the Holy Spirit and know that God is with us. Here's something else. Opposition will not stop you. Being opposed won't stop you. You have to agree 1810, first part, for I'm with you and no one is going to attack and harm you. Paul said, you don't know what you're down here. I've used up my last taser. Your Jews are crazy. They come at me frothing at the mouth. All I'm doing is teaching, giving it my best shot. And why does the Lord share this with Paul? It's simple. Paul had experienced and knew what it was before, been to other places that needed the gospel. He knew it was spiritual warfare. He knew they would try to kill him. He had been against this before, but some reason or another now is different. Why? Because he comes off the revival meeting in Thessalonica. The people are saved in Berea. The wonderful reports in Athens. Why can't I have that all the time? I come to Corinth, the major city here, and nothing shakes. And I'm teaching hour after hour after hour. And in the midst of that, God gives him a ray of hope. And I found this to be true. You get a bad report. You get a bad medical report. You get a report things are not well. You get a bad financial statement. You hit a financial rut. You hit angst in the marriage. You hit difficulty among the kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What are you going to do? How are you going? I, I'm in a deep, deep depression. Well, let me tell you, no matter how deep your depression might be, God's already there. You will never get to the bottom where God is not. He's always there. All of a sudden, Christmas, the chief ruler of the synagogue received Jesus, accepted the message. Paul said, now, uh, that's what I'm talking about. Chief ruler, 
big leader, man of credentials, man of influence. And guess what? How wonderful is that? He's saying, look what the Lord has done. Lanny Wolf, how many remember him? How many don't remember Lanny Wolf? Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Lanny Wolf. Someone is praying for you. Someone is praying for you. Lanny Wolf. But how many of you remember the song Sandy Patty and Larnell Harris sang? What's the name of that song? More than wonderful. Lanny Wolf in 1982 accomplished two or three master's degrees in music. He said, I was in Mississippi when I wrote, uh, The Spirit of the Lord is in this place. He said, The trio, it was a dedication, and there was several high falutin officials at this church and dedicating their new building. You could smell the new carpet and the paint and all of that. And they were having church out there. He said, We're in the back, getting ready to be introduced anytime. And he said, I'm there, and the Holy Spirit hit me. I grabbed a pencil, and I began to write, the Spirit of the Lord is in this place. Just on a dime, God gave me the song. Hard to play, different chords on the piano. God gave it, and we worked it out right then and right there before we ever went out. He said, I didn't have the whole song. He said, this is big dedication day. But he said, the spirit was so strong about that song. The spirit of the Lord is in this place. I went out and sat down at the piano and said, folks, God just gave me a song. I don't know all of it yet. So I'm going to teach it to y'all as the anointing of the Holy Spirit flows on me. And we're going to learn it together here in your dedication of your church building. And he said, we did. Right then, right there, God gave the song. We all learned it together. And boy, what a song it is. So he says, I was asked by the publisher, Benson Company, Lanny, I need you to write a song, I think out of Isaiah 9. He said, I'd had a Christmas musical, and last year had been successful, and he said, uh, I asked him again, well, can we, uh, we kind of have another Christmas special, the trio and special guest? And he said, my publisher said, I don't think that's what we need to do right now. And he said, I got to know. He said, I was all hyped up about it. Last year was just great. God was flowing. I'm getting songs and I'm a songwriter. And, and he said, uh, it's amazing. He said, so he said, why don't you write a song? And I believe it was Isaiah 9. And he said, I, I went back and prayed and sought God and, and took it back to the publisher. And the publisher said, well, Lanny, that, that's a nice song. But that, write a better song. I need a better song. That song just doesn't cut it. 
He said, what do you mean it doesn't cut it? He said, it just doesn't cut it. He said, I went back and communicated with another friend of mine and said, this is a good song. He said, why don't we put the track to it and the music and let's invite Sandy Patty and Larnell Harris to come in and sing the song. He said, we couldn't get together with them to come to the studio at the same time. So he said, first, I believe he said, Sandy Patty came in, and she sang the song to a dummy voice. He said, a dummy voice sharing and singing Larnell's part. She sang her part. Maybe two weeks later, Larnell came in, and he sang his part. And we laid it on the track, more than wonderful. He said, I can't tell you the disappointment that I went through. I can't tell you that my publisher said I need to write another song and go write a song out of Isaiah because he turned down what I wanted to do in the musical. And he said, then he wasn't hyped up and and said, this song is not good enough. He said, and I went through all of that. I began to doubt my ability to write songs. I began to doubt my ability to have the anointing of God speak to my heart. And he said, but no matter what happened, we decided to, well, maybe we can, in a little way, endeavor to to get a track. So we got Sandy Patty. He said, you know what? I'm so glad I didn't get mad. I'm so glad I didn't get angry, even though I was angry. I'm so glad it didn't get in my spirit. I'm so glad that I just kept moving. He said, because when that song came out, he said, that song got them Song of the Year, Dove Award. That song got me Songwriter of the Year, Dove Award. That song has sold millions and millions and millions of copy. Little did I know what God would do through that song, and little did I know that the enemy was setting me up for failure if I would have just quit crumpled up my song, and thrown it in the garbage. Paul, there are people here that you don't even know yet that need the gospel. Nobody's going to hurt you. Nobody's going to harm you. Understand, stay with the program. Why? Because somebody is depending on you. Acts 18.10, second part, because I have many people in this city. Why is that important? Because people were the reason Jesus gave his life. I don't understand people are the reason God gave his life. There had never been a lack of unsaved people, the opportunity to need. It's always been the failure of men and women to stand in the gap. God did not want him to look at the hard circumstances He didn't want him to look at the hardened hearts of the people. He didn't want him to look at the lack of response. He didn't want him to look at a painting that made no sense at all. What he wanted Paul to do is I want you to see how I see and I want you to keep your eyes on me. And so I want to encourage you Paul couldn't see the people respond, but God said, there are many that have yet to respond, and they're there. 
So what do we do? God's plan, one plants, one waters, and God gives the harvest. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9. It says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded. Here it is. Each will be rewarded according to his own labor. And when I saw that in my devotions, in my meditation, this is what the Holy Spirit spoke to me. God observes how you handle pain and disappointment. And your response emotionally and spiritually, he observes that labor. You don't have to labor shouting success, but you labor going through the darkest of night. You labor trying to find your way through a maze of discouragement. You labor trying to make sense out of unsensible people. You labor going through depression. You labor going through anxiety. You labor going through challenges when, when you know you have said, God, I've, I've done my best. I'm not without fault, but I've done my best. You labor through those things. And God says, the way I'm going to reward you is how you learn to labor through those things. May God help us to learn that lesson no matter how old you are, no matter how wise you may be, no matter how wonderful you might be. God, I do not want to abort what you have gifted to me right here and right now. Would you stand? Let's give the Lord a clap offering. Would you do that? That's all right. Here we go. That's pitiful, by the way, just letting you know. So Holy Spirit of God, nothing is too big for you. Nothing is too large for you. We know that you just gave us example of one of the most prolific writers in the New Testament. A man that is respected, a man that is revered, a man that was an unbelievable genius in his day. As a matter of fact, many individual commentaries have said there's never been a man like the Apostle Paul since the day that he was alive. But God, we know this. We know this. We know this. That every single day we breathe, you're preparing us for better and bigger. You're preparing us to get closer. You're preparing us so that other people can see what it's like to walk through the valley of the shadow of darkness. And whatever burden that we are carrying, whatever backpack of issues that we're having to carry, there is a reason that we're carrying them. We don't want to stomp our feet and fret we want to take it and say God you trust me enough to let me go through this and I am not going to disappoint you I'm going to carry it with joy and with gladness because I one day 
and going to be rewarded by how I manage where I'm at right now. I thank you for that privilege. Give us grace and honor and minister to every need in this room right now. By the power of Jesus Christ, sing the song with us. Everybody, would you?